Stand at Ease, episode 31, Sunday, May 6th, 2012. I got more by thinking about others and being maniacal about taking care of them than I ever got in thinking about myself. It was devotion to their men and the Marines. Everybody went to bed, you sat up and you drank a while. Or you went out and raised hell in, in town. I'm sorry. It's for the chicks. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. How excited I am to finally be getting David back. Who I'm Yay! Not, I, I'm not sure if he, we we kind of cut these things in and out of order a little bit. So David was out the in our time was out sick, but it's good to have him back now. Glad that you're back. But anyways, over to my left, D. Bjorn Christian, hailing from good Grand morning. Forks, North Dakota. Welcome back, David. Up here. Up here with the Ludafisk eaters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure, you betcha they're here. <laughs> and over to my right, as always, James L. Johnson Jr., who is now hailing from the Detroit, Michigan, recovering Chrysler having a big uh, quarter to report. James L. Johnson Jr., welcome back, buddy. Well, thank you very much, and the best of both of you. It's sun shining here. The weather's beautiful. And you know what? Chrysler did have a good report. Yeah. I think things might be looking uh, upwards for the automobile industry. Yeah, yeah, Matter yeah. of fact, for the last year, they've been reaching gains by leaps and bounds. But let's go on with the show. Today's an exciting show. Well, I'm excited because we have Ann Cipriano live from Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome, Ann. Well, good morning, gentlemen. It's actually Ann Cipriano Venzen. Don't okay. leave the last name off. Oh, forgive me. <laughs> forgive me. I just need to know something, ma'am. Do I hyphenate that? No. Roger that. So for those of you that got it, because it's important, because Ann, well, I'm not going to go ahead and blow Jim's thunder. James, would you please do me the honors and introduce Ann? I'd love to. Ann is a noted author and historian. She's written several books Today's show is one that I find, and matter of fact, any Marine will find interesting. It's Leaders of Men. She wants to talk about 10 Marines who changed or affected the Marine Corps. Anne's written numerous books, uh, Whale Boat to Amphibious Warfare, America's War with Spain, uh, the United States in the First World War, Major General Smedley Darling Butler, Letters of a Letterneck. Spanish-American War, Gunboat Diplomacy in the Mediterranean, and I could go on and on. Anne, thank you for coming aboard today, it is and my welcome pleasure. to our show. Thank you, sir. You're more than welcome. Oh, one other note I should mention. Anne's father was a Marine also, who fought in World War II on Guam and Iwo Jima. So let's... Go, go ahead, Anne. I'm sorry. No, it was the 3rd Marine Division. I think it was the 21st Marines, 3rd Marine Division. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's jump right into this book and go from there. There's a couple questions that uh, we're dying to ask you. How did you select these 10 individuals? Um, I'd kind of become familiar with them through my dissertation, which was also on Smedley Butler. Their names keep popping up tangentially because at this point, in 1915, when I was started working on the period on Butler, um, he, it was a very small Marine Corps. So everyone knew everyone else. You were either senior to somebody or junior to somebody, but you knew everyone. Um, they, and these names kept coming up frequently. It was clear that they had integral roles in the Corps not necessarily officially, um, but things were done on a much more ad hoc, informal basis in those days. Um, and you could get away with a lot more, too. So I was curious to see what they had done. And as I started looking, I realized that that these are representative. I, I could have picked 50 men or 75, but my publisher didn't really want to hear that. So we whittled it down to... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had to get it down to something manageable. Um, these these men kind of form a timeline from Huntington, who was at the beginning, to uh, our our last friend Fritz Wise at the end. Um, there's a continuum of of passing down 
leadership qualities, management qualities, although they didn't call it management in those days, um, that formed the, um, the, the, the psychology or, you know, the, in historical high-flown terms, the zeitgeist of the Marine Corps. It's what Marines are made of. And I think that you gentlemen today would be as comfortable dealing with these men as you were dealing with the guys that you were in the service with. That piece hasn't changed. I, I understand some of the names immediately jump out at me, but some of them don't. Could we go through that list of those ten and you can tell us a little bit about each one of them? Absolutely. Um, let me get my list and change my glasses. Because the, eyes are, the eyes are getting old. Mature vision. Oh. That's mature vision. <laughs> mature vision. Yes. Well, you know, you know, they say memory is the second thing to go. So. Second thing to go. Yeah. Well, I can still read. Well, let's see. Um, Robert Watkinson Huntington. Interesting man. Quiet. Quite um, religiously oriented. Um, had a bit of a tiff with his father when he went to join the Marines uh, because he was at Trinity College in Connecticut. Um, father finally reconciled to that and um, Huntington got into numerous scrapes um, visited China in excuse me Japan in 1868 um, he was look at a picture of him if you can he's ramrod straight a little bit door most of these guys had mustaches which is something different from today um, but he was, he was just a rock. And he ended his career commanding the troops at Guantanamo Bay during the Spanish-American War. Uh, so he spanned that whole half of the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century, in which the Marines really hit the nadir and then started to come back. What um, was his retiring rank? He was a colonel. Colonel. It's interesting, most of these people were colonels because, you know, colonel maintained a higher, well, for lack of a better way to explain it, a higher amount of responsibility in what they currently hold today. Isn't that so mm -hmm. at that time? Absolutely. Promotions were few and far between. Some of these guys would spend 15 years as a, as a captain, uh, and there were those who retired as a 30-year major which we would consider horrible at this point. It wouldn't happen. But in those days, mm -hmm. it was not uncommon. Um, so then we moved on to Henry Clay Cochran. Um, he had a reputation as being a real martinet. You didn't sneeze without his permission. He was roundly <laughs> disliked by everyone. Some of the men um, later on... Uh, when they saw that they might return to duty with him, would rather go out and serve in the jungle than have to do a second tour with him. But <laughs> um, that's not a joke. I mean, read the book. You will see. Um, mm -hmm. he, was, he was rigid in his belief that while discipline was paramount, you had to take care of your men. Their barracks had to be spotless. Now, if that meant they were on their hands and knees scrubbing with a toothbrush, that was fine. But they had to live in spotless conditions. They had to have three meals a day, and they better be edible meals a day. Um, his officers were to be right in there with the men. You don't ask the men to do something that you are not doing. So he was thoroughly disliked, but everybody who went through the crucible of service with him, came out with those basic understandings. You take care of your guys, and you don't ask them to do something that you don't do with them, or haven't done with them. Those are key characteristics of leadership, and the spotlessness, the being that clean is important when you've got that many people together to keep mm -hmm. down diseases. And so this man, place, this, this man was probably ahead of his time. A bit. He was, he was just... I think he himself was a bit of a neat freak, and it just kind of carried itself in, especially when you consider some, not some of the places they went. Um, mm -hmm. he, he, at one point, was head of the Marine Guard for the Paris International Exhibition. But then they would go to Panama, and believe me, the jungles of Panama in those days were beyond primitive. 
So cleanliness was was not only next to godliness, it was next to being healthy. Um, well, you know, we stressed that up one side and down the other when mm-hmm. I was in Vietnam. You know, uh, jungle rot was something that everybody was concerned about. And Ninth Marines, that's one of the things that Colonel Burroughs at that time really, really stretched because we were in such, uh, call it primitive conditions, infections could set in and then we mm-hmm. end up with medevacs. So we had to maintain cleanliness at all times. And that's something you looked at with your men, even out in the middle of the jungle. I mean, if, oh, if yeah. you... And a lot of times, you know, your clothes would just rot right off of you, but you mm-hmm. did the best that you could do to stay as clean as you could. Well, the one who had an experience with clothes rotting was the next man in the book, um, Littleton Waller Taswell Waller. Now, he was a real Southern gentleman. His grandfathers had fought in the Revolution. They'd been in the Virginia House of Burgesses. Um, Waller is a fascinating character. He joined the Marines because he did not want to be a cotton merchant down in Norfolk and ended up arguing with, without a, a college degree, much less a law degree, arguing a case before the United States Supreme Court, which still holds precedent, just because he was that good. Um, of course, after... After his duty with JAG, he went back to sea duty. He ended up in the in the Philippines, um, and the old, old, old toast stand gentleman he served at Samar was started because of his expedition on Samar, which was was a very checkered kind of thing. There was a court martial; he was exonerated, but there was always a bit of a cloud. Uh, which was why he did not become commandant. Although this is the first one who um, did retire as a general. Very, very interesting man. Um, Going from the Supreme Court to murder charges always kind of blew my mind. (laughs) Then we got to um, Joseph Henry Pendleton, the exact opposite of, of Henry Clay Cochran. His nickname was Uncle Joe. His men adored him. He was just as intent on discipline, just as intent on cleanliness, but he, it was the delivery. He, if you got brought up in, on charges in front of him, it was, this is what you're going to do, and they thanked him for it. He was loved by everyone. And uh, had to actually fight to stay in the Marine Corps because... When he was on board ship going to Cuba in the Spanish-American War, they had they did gunnery practice on this boat, and apparently the concussion from one of these guns caused a detached retina. In those days, there was nothing you could do about it. I mean, today, a laser will glue it back on. It's not that big a deal. Um, he fudged a few eye exams. He memorized a few eye charts. It became quite... A, a problem until finally somebody said, look, he can do more with one and a half eyes than most of us can do with two. Leave him alone. And it never became an issue again. Well, you know what I found fascinating about Pendleton? Not only is Camp Pendleton named after him, but because of Pendleton's efforts in 1914, they established the base in San Diego where they originally right. wanted to put that in uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He was in, yeah, he was instrumental in buying 232 acres for a quarter of a million dollars. And, you know, for years now, they've been trying to not dismantle MCRD, but relocate it, and they can't find suitable locations for it. And it's all because of Pendleton that MCRD San Diego exists today because he's the one who brokered mm-hmm. that whole deal. Plus, on top of it, he was a Navy Cross recipient. So. Yes, it was hard to argue with him. Yeah. Uh, then there was... Um, and I, I want you to know something. There's something about hard arguing with Pendleton and Navy Cross holders. So. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> particularly, the Na- particularly the Navy Cross holders. We, ha- we struggle with that from time oh, to time. We struggle, yeah. we struggle. But we're going to move along. <laughs> N- nothing to see here. <laughs> right. uh, okay. Um, next was um, Wendell Cushing Neville. Um, better known as Buck Neville, better known as the loudest man in the Marine Corps. 
um, <laughs> he did become commandant, and he was just absolutely the most squared away marine you apparently you could ever meet. Got along with everyone, did his job impeccably, knew when to speak, when not to speak. Um, I think even a Navy crossholder would get along with him. Well, you know, he was a Medal of Honor recipient. Yes. He was, yes. He was a lieutenant colonel in uh, Veracruz, Mexico in 1914, and that's Very- where he received his uh, Medal of Honor. Then he fought in Bellow Woods. Mm-hmm. And, then and I think it was, was it 1929 that he became the 14th commandant somewhere along yes, there? that's right. Ah, that yeah. is correct. Um, then we moved on to um, John Twiggs Meyer. Also Handsome came Jack. Him, Handsome Jack Meyer. And uh, yep. when you look at, look at some of his pictures. Um, I tell you honestly, when, when I was working on this book and I had some pictures up, my daughter, who was a teenager at that point, sort of walked by the door, Looked, stopped, never comes into this room. She's a scientist type, not not a historian. Walked into the office and said, who is that? And this was a picture of Myers when he was in his late 50s. The man He died in 1952, correct? Yes, yes, he did. Um, He was the uh, last living recipient of the uh, Brevet Medal. Yes, but in in between those times... um, he was responsible for the largely responsible for the uh, holding of the legations at Peking um, in the Boxer Rebellion. There's a really awful movie, Fifty Five Days in Peking. Oh yeah. He, he, yeah, I mean, really, really bad movie. Um, but Handsome Jack uh, held the wall and uh, was. Injured badly, he was was stabbed with a um, a very large Chinese pike, which caused him problems for the rest of his life. Um, he he was n- never really and truly recovered, but he again was so good at what he did, and he so disliked administration and was so good at it that they they refused to medically retire him. Um, he he was a fixture in the Marines. And there was there was just no getting away from that. The next man, George Thorpe. Um, well, before we go yes. to Thorpe, let's yes. go back to uh, Handsome Jack, because I always found him fascinating simply because Charlton Heston really tailored his part <laughs> after him. <laughs> and, and, the, and the wind and the lion? Yes. That part of uh, Captain... Uh, Jerome, I think it was, that was actually tailored after his exploits. Is that true? Jack Myers didn't make it to Morocco. Uh, Wasn't he commanding the Marines who were dispatched to Tangiers? I'm going to have to go back and check. I never found that in his service record. I, you know, I used to teach Marine Corps history, so I know a little bit about these guys. I, I, some of them, I know, not all of them. I know. So, so, so yeah. I am hesitant. I am hesitant to say no. Um, well, we'll have to we'll have to look that up and to, find out. Uh, for the first guest that emails me the correct answer on the back channel, I will buy you one <laughs> six pack of beer of your personal choice out of Jim's profits from this show. There we go. <laughs> By the way, well, I do want on. you. But hang on, I do want you to know. Um, James, uh, it, being a Navy cross holder himself, James is hard to argue with. Anne, so you've been you, you, now you're, not, you're feeling the <laughs> you, beat down. You, you did not hear me argue. I said I had to check. <laughs> I'm only thinking of you, and I'm that, only thinking of you. Okay, I, that's we're, okay. We're, we're going to move along. Um, George Thorpe, another interesting guy. Um, tried to to build from the Naval Academy. Because of illnesses, he apparently had uh, some sort of medical problem, but um, he repeated the year. He managed to graduate, and um, this guy actually became a practicing attorney. Um, but his real claim to fame is that he led the expedition from Djibouti to um, Addis Ababa in 1903 when we signed the treaty with the, um, I guess it was Emperor Menelik II. Um, 
his his brother Teddy Roosevelt wanted to have a, a treaty with. At that point, it was Abyssinia. And um, as a gift to the president, they had to bring back two lion cubs from the emperor, which uh, was a bit of a task because they were using camels at that point, and the camels didn't really like having lions on their back. They could, they could smell them. Can you, can you blame them? Yeah, so so this, this pre- presented some, some interesting issues. Um, Thorpe also wanted very much to get into combat in the First World War, but he ended up in um, uh, the Dominican Republic doing uh, a really amazing job of of holding that place together because more and more troops were being pulled away. Um, But his um, his legal education uh, stood him in very good stead at that point. And when he retired, he became a principal in a law firm in Boston and then in uh, Washington, D.C. So it's, it's tough to say that all of these guys were the sort of one-dimensional individuals that, they, unfortunately, they get a reputation for. for. Well, in Not this, so. In, in Thorpe's particular case, I have to do a shout-out to my Minnesota brethren, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but D. Bjorn Christian is a Minnesota boy. Thorpe was a Minnesota right. boy. So I'm going right. to give it to you, Kaiser. Minneapolis, too. I mean, you're not there, but I'm going to give it up for Minneapolis. Hey, and we're the finest Marines a... coming from there. I hate to do it. I'm a Wisconsin boy, but I hate to do it. But anyways, <laughs> David, congrats. Go eat your cheese. I'm off to the races. Okay. Cool. okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then, then there's good old Smedley Darlington Butler. It's tough to really... Get a handle on Smithley. Um, born a Quaker. Mother was very firmly a Quaker. Um, fudged his his date to enter the Marines. He was 16 at the time. His, his mother was actually quite panicked that he not make it any later because then she and his father would not have been married and that would not have stood well. Uh, father was Congressman Thomas Butler on the Naval Affairs Committee. Now, Smedley, Smedley was a little bit like Peter Pan, never quite grew up. When he was a general in the First World War, he still wanted to get out there, and though they wouldn't let him see any combat, um, he was there getting a, another nickname as General Duckboard, because when they liberated, and you gentlemen know what I mean by liberated, Miles of duckboard from the um, from the docks at Brest. Um, he, he marched right back to the camp with his section of duckboard, much to the chagrin of younger men who was, "Oh, General, let me carry that." No, you're tired. I will carry it. No, General, no, no, you're tired. You're know, putting them all to shame. Um, two medals of honor, one for Veracruz one for Fort Riviere in Haiti, a medal that he tried mightily to give back because he said that he didn't earn it, um, a Navy Cross and assorted other distinctions. Um, did not become Commandant, I think in part because he could never play the politician. He just spoke his mind and that, that could be a dangerous thing. Um, By the way, Smedley D. Butler, my first duty station out of boot camp. Really? Yeah. Well. Well, here's uh, a guy that had a Marine Corps emblem tattooed on his chest. He got shot once, and it went through the emblem. In the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, When they were approaching uh, the the walls, and it it took out a big stripe across it. But um, the bullet hit a button on his blouse and together dug the trench across his chest. But he, his son still had that bullet when I first met him back in the um, very early 80s because Dad had, mm-hmm. um, had saved that bullet and, and you could see how it was, the nose of it was mashed where it had hit the button. Um, yeah, an interesting and colorful life. Oh, well, other than Dan Daly... He's the only Marine other to, uh, ever to win two Medal of Honors. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, that, that speaks volumes. It, you know what I found fascinating about him, and you can uh, really elaborate on this. In 1933, Butler 
an American hero. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he was he was a poster child for the Marine Corps. You want to be yes. a Marine, you better be like Smedley D. Butler. And they accused him of trying to do a political conspiracy to overthrow Franklin uh, Roosevelt. Well, that that there's a lot of lot of myth around that. Um, Butler was approached by a cabal. Um, and they quickly found that they had asked the wrong man because he threw them out and was very happy to testify in front of the House Armed Services, uh, excuse me, Un-American Activities Committee and give them chapter and verse about what had happened and who had been there. And uh, nothing ever came of it. There apparently were, were big names and because they're, they're they were smart enough not to put anything in writing. It boiled down to a case of he, sh- he said, he said. Um, but the transcript is at the Roosevelt Archives up in Hyde Park. Um, they picked the wrong man. Now, what he did do that was very also very interesting, Jim, he spoke to the bonus marchers shortly before all of this. Mm-hmm. When the bonus marchers had um, had taken over what was then Anacostia Flats, uh, he he had made when he got out of the Marines, he made a second career um, as a speaker, and spoke to them. In there are some old, very scratchy kinds of, of recordings of him. Spoke like a machine gun. Um, maybe he'd heard too many machine guns, but he spoke like a machine gun. And it was a little bit hard to follow what he was saying, but um, made it very clear that he was with them, that, and interestingly, that they were Americans first. There was not to be any violence. He was very firm in that. Um, But but his heart very much was with the bonus marchers. Why don't we tell our audience what the bonus marchers were? They were a group Uh, of uh, military men on it who were looking for... And rightfully after, so, some type of benefits. There, after World War One, many people were promised what they called a bonus that was supposed to be paid out in the 40s. But when the Depression slammed into the country and so many people were in terrible shape, these guys said, rather than waiting until 1940s, we may be dead by then. It's now 1931, 32. Give us our money now. And that was not forthcoming. So they mar- literally marched on Washington and set up camp, a very neat and sanitary camp, um, in an area that now it's all built up, but it was called Anacostia Flats. And they spent some time there until it was deemed that they had to be removed. And the person to do it was the chief of staff, Douglas MacArthur, who Douglas, ordered... Yep who ordered Dwight Eisenhower to do the job. It's very interesting how that all turned around. Yeah, they were prepared to do that by force. Yes, yes. And Eisenhower was had tremendous second thoughts about turning the cavalry, and there are pictures of him on, on horseback with MacArthur. Mm-hmm. Um, mercifully, it didn't come to that. Um, but, but they were absolutely ready to go. And the, the the men, the names that come up in that are really fascinating. Um, we can finish up briefly with this cast of characters. Um, Hiram Barse, hiking Hiram Barse, um, who believed that speed would make up for mass. And he took the, the forced march to an art form which he perfected in the Philippines and used with, uh, with great effect in France. Um, he actually ran for Congress himself, uh, was very narrowly defeated. And then the last one was Fritz Wise. Well, Barris was also a uh, Medal of Honor winner. Yeah, well, yes. He um, received that in, the, I think, the Philippine in, Wars. Uh, the Philippines or Veracruz. Yeah. Probably the one, Philippines. One the yeah. Another one we will check. Um, and Fritz Wise, son of a uh, Navy captain. And I ended with Fritz because 
he had a very sad end. He was an amazing officer, but never was the same after Bella Woods. His wife was a Red Cross nurse. She was in France at the time, and he went to Paris on leave. And when he walked in the door and she said to him, how are your Marines? He said, there are no more Marines. This so devastated him. Talk about what we currently call PTSD. Um, that he resigned long before Bars and Butler, men who were much older than he, um, and spent the rest of his life um, at home, tinkering, sometimes hospitalized. He had taken the, the destruction of Bella Woods so to heart. He had taken what Henry Clay Cochran said, you take care of your men. And he kept telling people that he couldn't take care of his men and could not live with that. So that is the cast of characters in the book. And to go back to Beers for a second, yes, it looks like he won his, or earned his Navy Cross in the uh, Philippines. Medal of the Honor. Na- yeah, Medal of Honor in the Philippines. In the Philippines? Okay. Yep. Hey, my memory works, huh? You, you know what I well, find you, so fascinating about this is that all these people come together to form a mosaic, for lack of a better way to explain it, of what a Marine really is. All the weaknesses, all the strengths, mm-hmm. all the leadership ability. Now I understand because when I first saw your list, I said, you know, how do all these guys tie together, all the people you could have selected? But listening to you, I can see. I, I can really see why uh, you selected them, I guess. Well, I, I, there are there are the standard big names, which we all know. Um, in part, they have been done to death, and they have been, been served well by their biographers. In fact, some of them have even written autobiographies. Um, but in some cases, they stood on these men's backs, which is shoulders, which is, and there's nothing wrong with that. They built on what they were taught. But sometimes it's nice for the teacher to get some credit, too. Um, these, I, I grew to rather like my, my group of ten sort of a little bit non-reg guys. And they were non-reg. And that's what I found appealing about them, because the Marines that I knew as a child, the, the Marines that I have come to know as an adult, all have that little bit of non-reg in them. And that's a good thing. That's what sets them apart from other services. Are you ever, when you're writing the book or if you run across other Marines, do you ever feel a certain responsibility as a writer to talk about this and the Marines from a certain perspective of upholding a certain ideal that, that you think other people think that you should uphold? Or do you approach it as this is what I have found and this is my perspective and um, and here's what I find about these particular Marines. How, how do you approach it? How do you arrive at that perspective? Um, I, I sometimes feel schizophrenic because I shouldn't say that with a psychologist nearby. And but, how does that make you feel? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but, but, you know, there there is... There's my personal life. My father was a Marine. My daughter-in-law was a Marine. Um, I, I grew up with these people. But then there is the training, my professional training. And I have to appreciate my professional training the same way a Marine appreciates his professional training. If I'm going to be a historian whose word is worth anything, who people will say, I read this book that she wrote. I, she has a reputation of telling it, telling the truth, so I will accept what she wrote. If I want my, my books to be taken that way, then I have to go back to my professional training, which is somewhat different from some current historians, I must say. Um, you're, you are evidence-driven. You follow the facts. You may start with a thesis, but the facts may blow that thesis out of the water. 
Um, these guys had warts. Fritz Dweis drank like a fish. He was self-medicating. But there's no question, he drank like a fish. Um, Smedley, oh dear Smedley, I might love him to death, but the man never knew when to be quiet. <laughs> and he shot and he shot himself in the foot because of it. That's why he didn't become commandant. He couldn't play the game. Um, my approach is these men don't need my help establishing a reputation for them. And sometimes the reputation is all the more distinguished because of their flaws, because they overcame the flaws that all of us have. Did that answer the question? Exactly answer the question, but it, okay. brings, it brings back a second part. I want to, if I can have a sub question. Sure. Um, as you take a look at uh, these people, and all of us, I think, as Marines, are taught, you know, about other Marines. Of course, Chesty Puller didn't make your book, but he's one that gets a lot of a lot of conversation. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we we don't meet those kinds of people when we're in the service. They're the famous ones. They're, they're mm -hmm. the dead ones. But, yes. we, but we all run across um, uh, some leader of some kind, some person that we look at while we're in the Marine Corps and kind of reach out and say, maybe someday that bastard will keep me alive mm -hmm. or keep me sane. Or they, There's something about uh, that Marine that's imparted into us um, as men and women that drive us to get us through whatever time, whatever our hitch is in the core. And, and yet the thing about that makes them really human and obtainable are the very flaws that you speak about. It's almost as if, you know, um, if we put these people on a particular pedestal, certainly of the leaders that I know of, Jim being one of those men in my life, that I looked to for, for many years and continue to as, as one of those leaders. If you take away the person's flaws, you take away the ability to obtain what they have. It's their mm -hmm. flaws that allow me to maybe possibly be someday, if I work hard enough, like that man. And, and you can relate to them because you do understand that they're flawed and I'm flawed, and, and that makes them a little more attainable. It makes them human. Yes. Here on the show about drinking. Of the ones that you know of, which of the names of the list of the people that are there, which one of those folks had drinking problems, to your knowledge? Uh, definitely Fritz Weiss. He blatantly admitted it. Um, I th to my knowledge... He was the only one who had a problem. Remember also, this was a very different era, and um, cocktail parties were what people did. And in the tropics, there was nothing to do, and they drank. But the only one with a problem was, was Wise. Mm -hmm. That I know of. And I've, I've got to, because it's in his medical records. Um, the others... It, it's comical because within the, the group of sort of marine historians of this time, everyone develops his or her favorites. And whenever you, you run into somebody who doesn't like one of the ones that happens to be your favorites, oh, he was a drinker. That was his problem. Because you can always say these guys drank. Because they did. They all drank. Yeah, and not, I, think, not, I think problem can be defined differently by anybody. Yes, Sure. Wise had a problem. The rest of them, I think, would qualify as social drinkers. And certainly when they were out in the bush and there was nothing to drink, they didn't drink. Well, you see, that's how I classify myself. I'm a highly sociable person. <laughs> <laughs> We've been trying to keep you in the bush all these years, Jim. But damn it, you come out here like some sort of... Uh... <laughs> and in psychology, we call that rationalization. There, there ah. you go. Yeah. So I've ways, heard that term before. Yes. <laughs> in um, in so many ways, you know, we're we're talking about we, before we came out. We do this a lot in a lot of the other shows. And I got an email from somebody who said that they wish that we would do. I would do one of two things. One, I would quit talking about the conversations we have before the show, 
or two, just post the damn conversations before the show. Record them and put them up because we talk a lot before and after the program, and I think that that's that you know that that's important. But we talk about what's happening with our young men and women that are coming back at this particular moment, and there's something mm-hmm. that's happening now that didn't happen back in the era of these leaders, and that is we, we've got big farm. we got pharmaceutical companies now that are there to fix a lot of things. Back then, we had alcohol. We mm-hmm. didn't really have, or maybe we had something. So you were talking about self-medicating, but I can only imagine, I can only imagine what... Uh, what some of that stuff would be like if you take a look at these folks. I've read Jim's, and we've talked in great detail about his um, his citation. But to get a couple of Congressional Medal of Honors, man, you're seeing some ugly garbage. And, yes. and finding your finding your way through that has got to be, boy, that's got to be that, that's got to be that's got to be a tough ship to write, don't you think? Uh- I was talking with someone about this a couple of weeks ago, and, and we speculated, and, and our resident psychologist here can tell me if we were crazy or, or maybe onto something. Yes. When, when these guys, up to, up to the Second World War, when they came home, it really was a slow boat. And you were with your unit because they weren't transferring people in and out of units the way they do. It, it was, went as a group, you came home as a group. And on board ship, for sometimes weeks, you had a bit of time to talk about what had happened, to decompress a little bit, to exchange views, to just kind of unwind, maybe. Now, I, I, I think of people that I know who are in theater one day and two days later, they're on their doorstep. They have had no time to process anything. And they're expect people at home are thrilled to see them and they are expected to just fit back into the roles the way they did when they left with no time. Also, coming back from the First World War, we had these huge embarkation camps. There were 50,000 people in the embarkation camps at Brest, and the ships couldn't take them that fast. So not only did you have the time on the ship, but you had maybe up to a month in the camp writing letters, reading magazines, going to the band concerts, drawing with your the rest of the guys in your units, eating, sleeping, drawing with the rest of your guys in your units, kind of doing some, some peer support which we just don't do anymore. And perhaps that helped some of them. I, and now I'm going to toss that one back to our psychiatrist or psychologist and, and tell me if we're nuts. Well, what, if you look at what the uh, 1st Marine Division did down at Camp Pendleton, oh, was it back about 2005, one of the things they, they started doing is when troops came home from the theater, they didn't go right on leave. They had to. They had to be basically in a quarantine for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. And during that during that time, they were the Marines were given magazines. They were given um, shown allowed to watch TV and all kinds of other stuff. Just kind of catch them up on what's happened while they were gone. Mm-hmm. But also during that time, there were, they had access to counselors and. They got to talk with their comrades, and you know, so it was a. That was when they had their decompression time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if they're still doing the same type of quarantine. I know, like when the, oh, uh, uh, the Red Bull Division came back just not too long ago from Kuwait, they did get sequestered. I think it was on a Fort Polk, Fort Polk, Louisiana, or in Indiana for administration services, but it, w- it was like three or four days, and then they were back in Minnesota. Mm. And I have a couple of, of students who are in the reserves who came back, um, and you could tell that they hadn't really had enough time to de- decompress. So that that time in the camps, that time with the comrades really does help. My father, when he came back from Korea, um, they had a troop ship from Japan. Well, he had, he had been occupation force in Japan for five months. 
and then came back uh, into San Francisco and then had a troop train from San Francisco back to Minnesota. So there's there's still, again, another chance for him to decompress. And I asked him about that, if he had problems adjusting back to civilian life, and he said it was a lot easier for him than it was for his nephews, my cousins, who came back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. There so, also was a different national attitude at the time, I think. Well, now Korea, you know, that was a forgotten war, too. So, Absolutely. You know, and my dad says that he he had watched his his cousins and his older siblings who came back from from World War II, and everyone you know mm-hmm. met him on the streets. They shook mm-hmm. his, shook their hands. Dad got back from Korea, and it was pretty much oh you were you've been gone for two years. How you doing now? Yeah. So a lot of get, times the uh, Korean War is referred to as the Valley War. You came off of World War II, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden the economy spiked up. People were much more prosperous. Uh, they thought that there would be no more wars as we call them wars. They didn't use Korea as a war. They called it a, uh, a police, police action. action, basically. Yeah. So uh, there wasn't that feeling, whereas the Vietnam era was totally different. Uh, you know, you had protest. You had a... You had a cultural change taking place in the country. I know when I came back, again, I spent three tours there. My last tour, when I came back for discharge, was like a a whirlwind. I came back. I hit Camp Pendleton. Uh, They just processed us. I mean, it was just you were like cattle. And as far as talking to each other about anything, you didn't talk to each other about anything. I mean, you had a bunch of hard asses around that area with it, and you, they'd let you go out on liberty. You'd get drunk all night if that's what you wanted to do, just show up the next day. And sometimes, even if you didn't show up, nothing was ever said. And when they discharged you, there wasn't a big ceremony. You set up in bleachers. You set up there. At, for me, I set up in my greens. Uh, sometimes you had all your decorations on. Sometimes you didn't. Depends on, you know, if you were around to buy them. It was about a maybe a 20-minute ceremony at the most. They sent you back to the barracks, half the uniforms, the guys left in the barracks, and you were gone. This mm-hmm. decompression time that you speak of, there was no decompression time. It was just, you know, let's shuttle you through. Let's get through this. Let's move yeah. on. And then all of a sudden you were turned out. Uh, you were easy to spot, trust me. I mean, they knew that you were a Marine. So you kind of... I don't know, you, you just kept your mouth shut, and, and you moved on. And when you came home, yeah, you're right. You know, oh, God, I'm glad to see you. It's this, it's that. And you were smiley, and you were happy, and you gave your hugs and your kisses. And when everybody went to bed, you sat up and you drank a while, or you went out and raised hell in, in town. I mean, I know my grandfather, when I came home, he wouldn't take the trash out because I had so many beer bottles and whiskey bottles there that he would dispose of those in other locations so that our trash man didn't know how much I drank. So, well, that's a I mean, it's... <laughs> hey, by the way, go ahead, Jim. Sorry, buddy. No, I mean, uh, he'd gone through this with my uncles in World War II. So it was, wasn't a big deal to him, but he didn't want to be embarrassed by the trash guys, thinking, well, God, what do we got? A wino willy living here or something on it? Because I I put away some booze when I came home. Uh, Shifting gears only slightly, Mm -hmm. do you feel, of of the ten guys in leadership that you had there, and we had such differing personalities, obviously. Oh, yes. But can you say that there is or is there – kind of an underlying current of sameness across all ten? Yes. What would that be? It's, it was devotion to their men and the Marines and the country and then their families. It, they, had a, they had a priority list and, and I think it was, it was something that they, they rarely put down on paper. It was just it was just the way they they thought um it was devotion to the man to your left and your right 
and then it was to the greater core. And why are we part of this greater core? Because we defend the United States of America. Um, and then it was, why are we doing that? We're doing it for our families. At the end of the day, it was, I'm taking care of my guys. These are my family. I have a family, but they're my family, and that's what I do. I, that, that's the piece that runs through all of them. Whether they adored Uncle Joe, they couldn't stand Henry Cochran, Handsome Jack was, was what he was, Fritz Wise was drinking, all of them behaved the way they did because at the end of the day, they were Marines. I, I see that. I was down at Quantico two weeks ago, and there's a new film at the museum. I was with a group of Royal Marines who were here um, doing a, a squash tour of the United States. <laughs> um, I, I haven't found out how the fixtures went yet, but that that is a piece that was driven home in this movie, and they sat there, and these are Royal Marines, who our Marines really grew out of. And when the film was done, they sort of looked at each other and said, yeah, that sounds about right. That's, at the end of the day, that's the truth. I'm loyal to my guys, and then it spreads out from there. I don't know how that starts, though. How, it how starts that? in training. That's where it starts yep. at. You think as one, you act as one, and you move as one. And, and your actions... Calm. And your actions reflect upon the group. But there is, something, there is something that drives a person to join the Marines as opposed to all the other services. I, I think it starts even before training. It is. For, it is. I'm sorry. Just for the chicks. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this brilliant author right. on the line and it deteriorates to that. <laughs> You've got the best uniforms of any of them. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> I do have to. You, you, you know what I've always thought it was? It was the image that you had in your mind of what a Marine is. And it was a question in your mind can I be that? Or I think I am that. And I think that's one of the reasons right there. I mean, you, you look at the Marines, you think of first to fight, last to leave. The one thing about the Marine Corps is that discipline is hammered out on you on the anvil. And, it, and these guys can attest to it. Any man who's ever worn the uniform, the one thing that all Marines have in common is their initial training. Because in the initial training, we take away what was and give you what is and yes. allow what was to come back on a different kind of a level. Because now you're part of something. You're part of a history. That's why that, you know, I was told once that uh, medals for valor only belong to you at one point in time. And that's when they're first awarded. After that, they belong to every man or woman who wears the uniform. You become part of the history, part of the mm -hmm. tradition, part of what's supposed to be lived up to. And you're kind of perceived that way too that's the part that i've explained to gar and and dave a couple times that you know uh, to me uh, the navy cross truly was a cross in one sense because people everyone had a different expectation everyone had a mm -hmm. different feeling towards you and and you knew that and you had to kind of navigate your way it. through it yeah mm -hmm. but, but the whole thing here is about this is a institution that is full of brave men who are willing to give their lives. All military is that way, but the Marines have a special type of mystique about them. And people who go out and enlist in the Marine Corps, they think that that's what I want to be. Mm -hmm. I want to be a Marine. I, I want that mystique about me. I want that, that feeling of uh, power, that feeling of commitment, that feeling that you know what, I'll, I'll give up my life willingly, but I'll do it for my buddies that are around me. I mean, mm -hmm. you, don't think, you don't think about yourself. You think about the group. And when you're in boot camp, your individual actions reflect upon the entire platoon. You know, I would punish you 
or actually I would stand you to the side a lot of times if you'll think back and I'd punish the platoon for a screw up that you made. And I'd let you stand there and everybody look at you while they sweated like a pig. You'd stand there. And what did that do? It did two things. Number one, made you feel like an asshole. And number two, it brought on peer pressure. You're not Mm going to screw up again because you're going to thrash the hell out of me if if you do. I think that kind of, I know that loosely describes it, but that's always been my thought. You know, I think we go through a period, all of us, and for those, I know that we have several listeners that have never worn a uniform or worn the Marine Corps uniform, and we're talking about the history of Marines, and so I think, and plus it's our show, so we can do what we want, basically. I like but, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you, you, Army guys, you want your own show? Get your own. Um, but here's, here's what I will say in terms of my experience, and everybody is slightly different. And I'm not a poet, but I'm going to do my best. Um, when you're in the training and you're getting started in being a young Marine, and I mean literally in phase one, the first few weeks even in receiving, you're walking around, your head, you're literally your hair still hurts because – it's, you know, all the weight that it once pulled on the follicles and are standing straight up. It's just painful from your head to your toe. But not a day goes by. Do you run the gamut of whether or not I can actually do this? Am I worthy of this? Every question that you've ever had as a man or a woman coming up to that particular point gets played in your head over and over and over again about how I don't care whether or not you were a complete athlete of all athletes, your body will be tested in ways that it's never been tested before. If you were a people pleaser, if you had it down in which you could please mom and dad, you could never please Jim. You were just so many things about your life that that you knew to be um, easy or safe or yours as a civilian. You come to find out that those traits, for the most part, will never work for you. Whatever game you played, if you were a thug on the street or if you were a stellar student who was maniacal about pleasing authority, it didn't have a room in the Marine Corps. But there was something that there was something that was rewarded. There was something that was amazingly rewarding. And that was simply this. If I forgot about myself for a moment, if I was able to park the me and I was able to just say, forget it. Forget it. It does. The you really doesn't matter, but the he matters and the she matters. And if I put my attention and my selfishness on them, something wonderful happens about being a Marine. Everybody is doing it back. I got more by thinking about others and being maniacal about taking care of them than I ever got in thinking about myself in any way, shape, or form. And the Marines teaches you, and they will show you, they will give you that opportunity to be part of that brotherhood, that sisterhood. If you can just park the you and think about those men. And if you happen to have the privilege to lead, then the responsibility to lead is even greater. And, and, uh, I, I don't know. That's, it's the best way that I can describe that as somebody who's gone through it. And it, it's not left me. Um, it's just that you have to do it in different ways. Not everybody feels the same way. And not everybody reacts the same way. But when I'm around my brothers, I know it's true. It's Ali Ali oxen free. I'm home. And I can only experience that around my Marines. Well said. Yeah, well said. Well, you know, uh, Dave, yeah. you know what it is, right? Yeah, it's that time. All right. Go ahead, All right. Time, time for our shout outs. Hey, let's talk about Sida Helms helping hands worldwide. She's doing great stuff down there in Southern California. Give her a shout out. Give her a hand. Our all the all the links are on our website. We also have Doc Bernie Duff doing great things for the people for his healing and for the people of Vietnam. And GusMcCoy.com. There's some new stories up. He just had one up about having a head call with uh, our Lee Army. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, James and and Anne and and David, I really want to I really want to really thank you. Please don't please don't leave us, Anne. After we hang up, I got a couple of things I wanted to run past you from All one right. from one author to the other. I rolled it out there. And, <laughs> Sounds uh, good. Sounds good. Yeah. And uh, but again, we're doing this. We're putting together. We're putting together our shows, and we would love nothing more than to have you back. 
and would would very much hope that you would stick around with us and and, and uh, reach out and touch us every once in a while if you come across a good idea or something. So, so uh, yeah. Anyways, four of the guys over there to my left, D.B. and Christian from Grand Forks, North Dakota. James getting a cup of coffee in Detroit, Michigan. And by the way, I meant to ask you, and I do wish to apologize. Um, your last name, of course, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that, but I wanted to... What is the nationality of your last name? Well, Cipriano is clearly Italian. Yes. Venzen actually is also. It's Italian. It's Italian from way, way up north of Venice. Gotcha. They, they tend to drop the vowels up there. Well, and Cipriano Venson, thank you for coming to us from Bethesda, Maryland. Um, you know the place in Bethesda. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I'm Garland Green coming to you from Tanya Israel. Thanks. Thanks.